Uniquely. 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 Issaquah. Hello and welcome to Uniquely Issaquah, a conversation about the people, places, and things that make Issaquah unique. I'm your host, Tim Smith, and on this episode, we'll be taking a look back into the history of Issaquah. Joining us to take us on this journey back in time is Erica Maniez, the Issaquah History Museum's director. Hello, Erica. Hey, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. Thank you for joining us. Sure thing. You know, I thought before we started, um, let's get a little history um, on the background of the Issaquah History Museums and your role there. Okay. Um, The Issaquah History Museum started out at the Issaquah Historical Society in 1972, and it was predominantly a volunteer organization for its first 25 to 30 years, Um, and I was hired in 1999 as the director. And we've been growing slowly since then and have a staff of five part-time people. Um, We supervise and take care of both of the museums. We collect uh, photographs and artifacts that document the history of Issaquah and care for them. And we offer a number of public programs like uh, our uh, history hikes uh, and mine hike program. Uh, What are the two museums? Uh, The Gilman Town Hall Museum, which is at 165 Southeast Andrews, and the Depot Museum. Great, great. Well, um, let's begin at the beginning. Um, why, when did Issaquah start becoming a town, and, and kind of why? Why, you I mean, you know, why did people gather here, and why did it start, you know, enough people be, to become a town? Right. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the first white settlers came into the area to farm. Um, apparently. Most of the people really wanted to settle in the White River Valley because that's where the land was very fertile. Um, But by the uh, early to mid-1860s, a lot of those land claims were already taken up. So people moved into um, what was known then as the Squawk Valley area. And between the 1860s and the late 1880s, it was really just a very small farming community. There were maybe a couple dozen families Um, There was a lot of hop farming in the area. That was the first big industry, Um, and that's big with a little b, not a capital B. It was still pretty small. Um, And just basic uh, cows, chickens, some farming. Um, They grew potatoes, I believe, for for people to eat, and then they grew uh, rutabagas and turnips and stuff for feed for the animals. And that was it. It was pretty much this distant eastern outpost. It took about two days to get to Seattle, um, and very tiny population for the first 20 years or so. Okay. Uh, what time frame was this again? Between the 1860s and the late 1880s. Okay. Um, so why? When did when did it first become a town? Uh, well, it first became. It was incorporated as a town in 1892, and that was a result of some of the activities kind of leading up to that. So mm. uh, it's all about coal and transportation. Mm. So, and the story of coal in Issaquah really links tightly to the story of coal and transportation in King County. So, it was known that there were coal deposits, possibly significant coal deposits in eastern King County by the early 1860s. Um, a gentleman named Lyman Andrews often gets credit for discovering coal in Issaquah, but he was really the first person who put some of it in a bag and took it to Seattle to have it tested. So there were already known to be coal deposits in the Renton area, uh, Newcastle area, and and here as well. So, um, and he started out trying to develop his claim, and 
uh, with great enthusiasm, but some difficulty because there was no way to get things easily to Seattle at that time. Um, the only railroad that ran through uh, went north-south, pretty much. Uh, so he uh, engaged a fellow who built a little scow or a little ship, and that was what they were going to use to transport the coal. So they had to pull this little scow uh, up through Lake Sammamish, into the Sammamish Slough, which was more of a river at that time, mm-hmm. down through Lake Washington, up the Black River, which no longer exists, it was in Renton, and then into the Duwamish Waterway to Seattle. So by that time, it had taken about two weeks, and it was about 70 miles through all that looping around. Wow. So they kind of struggled along like this for a while, but it really was not, uh, there wasn't enough money in it to really develop. Um, and so this was a source of some frustration for um, for folks who wanted to start getting the coal out of here. Yeah. One thing that's interesting is that at this time period, the major market for Seattle's goods was San Francisco. So between 1860 and about 1890, San Francisco grew from 100,000 people to about 300,000 people. So in comparison to Seattle, this was a really large city, and it was a seaport. So it was relatively easy for um, goods to be loaded in Seattle and sent down to San Francisco and sent to market. So um, San Francisco really wanted coal. Coal was the gasoline of the era. So they needed it to heat homes and run um, steam engines and ships and mm-hmm. all kinds of other stuff. So we know today how motivated we are by gasoline and making sure we have a source of, of oil. So it was similar then with coal. Um, so there was definitely this sense throughout King County that um, that people wanted to develop the coal deposits in eastern King County. Um, but still there's this challenge of not having a way to get to it. So in the early 1870s, the Northern Pacific Railroad was deciding on where it would have its terminus. And there were a couple different cities it was looking at. It was looking at Muckleteo, Port Townsend, Seattle, and Tacoma. Um, And all of those were sort of equally attractive, which is interesting. Now when you look at Muckleteo and Port Townsend, and wonder what their lives as cities might have been like. So anyway, um, of course, The major businessmen in Seattle really hoped that Seattle would be the terminus, and the major businessmen in Tacoma really hoped Tacoma would be the terminus because whoever got the terminus, who happened to have property, would be able to develop it into warehouses and other industry and so on and so on and make more money. So unfortunately for Seattle, um, the Northern Pacific chose Tacoma as its terminus, and uh, that was in 1873. And so um, the businessmen of Seattle sort of stewed for a while. Um, And there was one effort to get a railroad out to the coal deposits, and um, that was the Seattle and Walla Walla. That was a narrow-gauge rail, um, and they made it as far as Newcastle. So Renton and Newcastle were able to start developing their coal deposits, and that was great for them. Um, But we still had these deposits out here in Issaquah, and supposedly this was high-quality coal. A group of businessmen got together in Seattle. Um, Some of them have familiar names like Daniel Hunt Gilman and Thomas Burke. And you Mm -hmm. put those names together, get Mm -hmm. Burke Gilman. That's Mm -hmm. the Burke Gilman Trail. Um, And they decided, well, okay, we're going to just build our own darn railroad. And they had huge plans. They were going to go from Seattle north over the border into Canada and join up with a Canadian transcontinental railroad. And they were also going to go east through the state of Washington, through Spokane, and onward to join up with other railroads to make it transcontinental in the American end, too. 
So um, these great plans, unfortunately, didn't completely pan out for the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern. They got a little farther east than um, North Bend, uh, and then the panic of 1893 came in, and everything sort of fell apart. So what was the panic of 1893? That was like a small depression. That's okay. what they called them then, mm-hmm. instead of a depression or a recession. So, okay. mm-hmm. so there was a panic, and, and uh, lots of businessmen mm-hmm. lost money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took down the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern with it. So that was bad news for the founders of the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern. Um, the Northern Pacific eventually bought up that railroad and its line. Um, and that was the end of the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern, um, but really just the beginning still for Issaquah because it still had its depot and train track, and they could start developing the coal deposits. Okay, so so when they built that, that that's when... Uh, Issaquah got their depot. Yes, yeah. Um, So at about the same time in uh, 1887, the Seattle Coal and Iron Company incorporated, and um, interestingly, Daniel Hunt Gilman was also on the board of that organization. And so you see this a lot with um, some of the early businessmen. They had their thumbs in a lot of different pies, um, and so it was obviously in his best interests in developing both the railroad and the coal deposits in Issaquah. So the tracks reached Issaquah in about 1888, and by the end of 1889, uh, construction of the depot had been completed. And this, of course, changed Issaquah um, overnight because now anything that was grown or produced in Issaquah could be quickly moved to market in Seattle, and any goods that people wanted from Seattle could also come quickly from Seattle out to Issaquah. About how many people were living in the area when the depot, because it wasn't a town yet, right? It hadn't been incorporated. No, it wasn't. It was still referred to as Squawk Valley. Okay. So um, it was a few hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because the, one of the first station agents wrote a letter to someone talking about their life there in Squawk Valley. And he made some comment about how he'd really like to find another assignment because there really wasn't much there, especially for the girls. It was a very rough town and they didn't have the, you know, the opportunity of much genteel social interaction. Um, so so it was very small. Um, but as soon as the mines opened and started developing, uh, this led to people coming from all over the country and from all over the world, really, to come work in the coal mines here. Um, and there were a few reasons for that. Wages here were higher than they were in the East Coast. So, of course, that was very attractive. Um, Issaquah itself, which at that time was still Squawk Valley, uh, was an attractive place to come if you had a family because it was not a company town. So places like Newcastle were company towns. The company owned the main store, they ran the school, they owned all the housing. So you were really dependent on the coal mine's success to live there. And if uh, if the mines closed or if you went on strike, then you kind of you lost your housing and your school and your store and everything. So even though Squawk Valley or Issaquah was small. Um, it still had a basic community infrastructure. It had a school. It had some churches. Um, it had stores. It had people there who were not tied to the coal mining community so that uh, it wasn't quite as insular. So that was attractive. Um, other benefits that the, the coal miners here had, although they would not have known this in order to pick Issaquah, but apparently the coal here was low dust, which decreased the incidence of black lung. Um, some people say it did. there were no 
no black lung at all, but that's not entirely accurate. Um, black lung's probably not a, a precise diagnosis. It's more sort of a description. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a big danger for minors. So apparently we had a lower incidence of black lung. Um, it was also slightly safer in, in our minds for whatever reason. Um, safety was kind of a relative thing then. Uh, I know if you pass, I remember growing up and going past the aluminum company where my dad worked, and there was always a big sign talking about how many man hours they'd had, how many safe man right, hours, right. how many thousands. Yeah. Well, that didn't exist then. <laughs> I mean, they really weren't that the mine owners were not that concerned. Right. They wanted to get their product to the market and get as much money from it as they could mm -hmm. and spend as little as they could on getting it out. Mm -hmm. And there weren't a lot of worker protection laws. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's sort of what led to unionization and um, some of the labor issues that they faced later. So the very first boom was once the, once the train got here and then the coal started going, that's when you got a lot of residents. Yeah. Well, well, about, when, so you're 1889. Where are we right now? About 1889? Yeah, we're 1889, 1890, along okay. in there. And what was, the, what was the increase of population at that point? It went from probably a couple hundred people to a thousand people. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, there were about 250 people working in the mines um, as of 1891, there were 225 men working in the mine, and it was producing about 75 tons of coal a day. Mm -hmm. It later peaked at about 381, and the, the workers were probably, there were probably more workers at that time also. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a variety of different jobs that you could have in the mine. It wasn't just working down in the, um, in the mines, uh, actually digging up the coal. There were people who worked uh, at the sorting tables, um, this was a job that small kids could actually get, where they would sit at the table and sort the coal into different sizes. Um, if you were 14 or uh, 14 and up, you could drive one of the mule teams on the surface that would haul things back and forth. So I'm assuming there was a lot of child labor. Oh yeah, well, yeah. So a whole family could be working at the. At and the that was often the case. Um, if you had a number of sons, they often went off to work with their their parents in the early morning. And there are lots of of um, kind of anecdotal stories in the newspapers about kids um, getting collared for truancy and saying, "Well, you know, I'm I'm going to be 15 soon, and the family needs the money, so that's why we're working in the mines." Um, so um, so you've got this large influx of people. The mm -hmm. coal is booming. Mm -hmm. When did, when, so was this about the time when they thought, started to thinking, well, hey, maybe we have a town here at this point? Or yeah, was it? it was. Um, once the mine started opening and that became a really going concern, um, people started referring to the area as the Gilman Mines instead of Squawk Valley. And eventually that kind of shortened and people started calling it Gilman. Mm -hmm. It wasn't officially incorporated as Gilman until 1892, but people were already calling it Gilman by then. Mm -hmm. um, and they were calling it Gilman, of course, because of Daniel Hunt Gilman, who had founded the mine and brought the railroad to town. Um, so... Uh, that's where the name grew out of. Mm -hmm. So in 1892, they decided to make it official, and they incorporated. And the first mayor was actually, he was a physician for the coal mines. So he was very tied to the mines as well. Okay. So, but it still wasn't a company town. No, it wasn't. So um, 
Now, was there law in the town before it was incorporated? Was there a sheriff, or was it just kind of lawless? It I mean, how did that all take place? Well, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> Technically, <laughs> the the King County Sheriff um, and his deputies would have been in charge of, of mm -hmm. keeping the peace. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't an actual town marshal until they incorporated in 1892. But the fact of the matter is, particularly before you had the train, um, and even after that, I mean, it's hard for a sheriff or a deputy to respond to something rapidly when transportation was the way that it was. And so there are some stories of, of crimes that occurred, um, one in particular where uh, the, the accused, who'd been accused of um, blowing up a rooming house or a hotel, the explosion killed a miner. Um, and so a lot of the fellow miners were very angry about this, and they determined that they didn't really want to wait for the sheriff to come out and give this guy a trial, and they took him to a tree over by the current site of um, the Julius Bohm pool and hung him. So this is Issaquah's one and only um, hanging, uh, but so that's that's one of the, the incidents that occurred when you had you know, lawmen weren't quite available right, here. Right, right, right. And really, in some later instances, having just a town marshal was was not always effective, um, especially in cases of drunk and disorderly. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one case that I, I think of that I found going through the old um, police dockets from, from Gilman, where the town marshal had tried to arrest someone for drunk and disorderly, and the fellow resisted arrest, and the uh, the marshal continued trying to find other citizens who would help him and pull them in and he got so angry because no one would assist him that he ended up writing um, writing tickets for all of these people for you know <laughs> failing to help an officer in distress or whatever so um, the uh, it was quite challenging being a, a law enforcement yeah, officer yeah. in the 1890s. The <laughs> other interesting thing was that they they really, I mean, they didn't have any training. They elected the town marshal based on who they thought would do a good job. Yeah, right. So um, you kind of had to learn on the job, and you probably had to be pretty good with your fists if you wanted to be the town marshal. So, so 1892, mm -hmm. we've got a town, we've got a mayor, mm -hmm. and it's called Gilman. Yes. So how do we get from Gilman to Issaquah? Uh, we got from Gilman to Issaquah, apparently because there was another town in Washington that was named a similar name to Gilman. Um, I've heard that it was called Gilmer, and the mail started getting confused. So mail from Gilman was going to Gilmer, mail for Gilmer was going to Gilman. Everyone was getting confused, and the postmaster at the time decided that a sensible solution in his mind was, well, if he wanted to mail a letter to Gilman, you had to put Olney on the envelope. The town wasn't named Olney, just the post office. <laughs> so as you can imagine, this caused further confusion. And we, we kind of wondered about this. Why Olney? Well, we did some research on the first postmaster, and he'd grown up in Olney, Illinois. So this was his attempt at making hometown in his, his new home. So that didn't work either, and so they decided, okay, well, let's just scrap the whole thing, change the name back to what the original name had been. Um, Squawk Valley was kind of a um, bastardization. Uh, yeah. So Squawk Valley was a bastardization of the Native American name for the area, which was Ishquah, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, and so the first white settlers kind of, you know, smeared that into Squawk. 
so when they changed the name in 1899, they went back to the original name and got a little bit closer and called it Issaquah. So that's where the name Issaquah comes from. Okay. Speaking of native um, populations, so, so was there a lot of native populations when people initially started coming to this area? And did they coexist friendly? Or did the or did the natives move away or get pushed out? I mean, well, in the the Native Americans who were living in this area um, when the first white settlers arrived, it was a band called the Sammamish, and they were a subgroup of the Duwamish tribe. Uh, most of the tribes in the Puget Sound area were of the Coast Salish or Lachutseed language and culture group, so they all had fairly similar um, similar languages, ways of life. Um, cultures, that kind of thing. Uh, but they were relocated, quote, end quote, um, after the uh, Point Elliot Treaty was signed in 1852. And that was the treaty that basically said, okay, we're going to make a deal. We're going to take your land and we're going to move you to this other land. So the Native Americans, a lot of them that were indigenous to this very local area, um, ended up moving up to the Tulalip Reservation. Kind of as a result, after um, after the white settlers came in and started farming and needing seasonal labor, some Native Americans from the Snoqualmie tribe moved in and created a um, permanent settlement for themselves on the, the banks of Lake Sammamish. And then they were able to work seasonally for farmers and later for logging and lumber industries. And then also they were right on the lake so they could do hunting and fishing and that kind of thing um, during the off-season. I don't know if many... Uh, white communities could be said to peacefully coexist with the Native Americans in their area. Um, the racism of the time made that almost impossible. Right. Uh, and that's probably a whole other topic that we could get into. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I was just kind of curi curious what happened to the Native population, and it sounds right. just like they were just moved up to the Tulalips, and that was kind of like yeah. just a bunch of all the smaller tribes. They all kind of moved up there. Right, from the area. right. Okay. So the, the Snoqualmie Native Americans that stayed in the area, um, as far as I can figure from looking through census records, um, during the Depression, a lot of them then moved into Seattle or to Muckleshoot or to Tulalip. Um, just because a, a lot of them were living in the town that became Monahan, um, which was a major logging town. Mm -hmm. And of course, in 1925, they had a huge fire and the mill burned down and mm -hmm. it came back online again, but was very, um, very slow. And uh, it just became difficult for everybody in that area to um, to keep everything together after the Depression began. So there's a lot of people moving out of Monaghan. So in so ni 1899, we, mm -hmm. uh, the town finally becomes Issaquah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How many mayors from the time... That, that Four or five, I believe. Four or five. That's yeah. a lot. Just a small amount of time. Yeah. They started out with two-year terms, and there were a few people who got a little way in and said, mm, maybe not, um, and stepped back out. So we've got a we've got a listing on our website of wh which term started when and who was in the office. Um, so Issaquah, 1899 Issaquah, coal still booming. Mm -hmm. um, where do we go from here? Well, uh what happened, and actually this is something that started almost immediately as soon as you have coal mines and coal miners, is um, unionization and labor unions. So what eventually led to the closure of the mine in 1904, 
um, Issaquah's coal industry is sort of broken into a part one and a part two. Part one is the real boom, and then part two from about 1907 up to the 20s was definitely more of a footnote. Um, coal was still being produced, but it really wasn't going at that same fever pitch that it had been during the first 10 to 14 years. So a combination of things happened. As more of the mine, mine coal got mined, there was less available, and it was more costly to get to it. And then combined with that, the, the labor problems were increasing, and there were more strikes, and it was just more difficult to make things go. So 1904, um, the mines closed and then did not reopen again until 1910, those particular mines. Did they mine all the Isquah Alps, like Tiger, Squawk, all of them, or just mainly... Mainly squawk. Mainly squawk. Um, and then the mines in Newcastle um, are sort of nestled into Cougar Mountain. Okay. But it's the same seam that runs all the way through. Oh, okay. um, and it's the same thing over at Grand Ridge where the Issaquah Highlands are now. That was another mining center. And I think that kind of came online about 1907. Oh, okay. um, and it was those were also the same seams. Mm-hmm. So because you've got the, you know, you've got this nice layer of coal laid down or carbon, I guess, at the mm-hmm. time not a geologist. <laughs> and then, you know, everything gets folded up and the se- the seams right. are slants and that Okay. Kind of I was just cu- I was just curious. I yeah. I mean, I knew Squawk had a lot of mining, but I didn't know if Tiger or Cougar had that much. There was a little tiny mine that was supposedly established on Tiger that they later found out was just a stock swindle. They went as far as actually <laughs> digging the coal mine <laughs> and putting in the the portal and some tracks to make it look good, uh-huh. um, but actually didn't end up being a mine. Okay. So so those were the two main mines. We're at Grand Ridge and then on Squawk Mountain. Okay, okay. So 1904, mm-hmm. mining's winding down. Mm-hmm. So when mining winds down, what happens to Issaquah? Um, most of the miners had to find, they either had to find other work um, or they had to move away. Uh, I don't get a sense between it was a, there was a gap of between about 1904 and 1907 when the Grand Ridge mine opened up where there was really no coal mining in Issaquah. It's hard to know what happened during that time period because um, our best source for the day-to-day information about Issaquah is the Issaquah Press and the uh, the additions from about 1901 until about 1907 are missing. Oh. Uh, we don't have we don't know where they are. Um, apparently, they were around until the 60s, and then they disappeared. There are two or three volumes. And, of course, sometimes it feels like everything interesting that ever happened in Issaquah happened during those years because we can't find, right. <laughs> can't find the backup information. So I don't get the sense, from what I know, that that impacted Issaquah that much because things had been – the mines had been opened and closed and opened and closed pretty right. frequently okay. over that time period. Um, Issaquah was a very strongly union town, mm-hmm. and um, that may not have been unusual um, in some of the other areas, but I know that from what I've read of the early strikes, Gilman or Issaquah was the one that they were really concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I mentioned that almost as soon as the mines were opened, there started being um, mm-hmm. mining uh, that's unionization and labor conflict. That's that's basically. interesting. That, that's interesting that the unionization was was just almost immediately. Why why was that unique? I mean, well, it, there this was an era where um, coal mines all over the place. Miners were unionizing everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and that had been going on really since the 1870s. Right. So um, anything new 
obviously it's easier to get yes. in once it's, you know, as, yeah. as opposed to. And a lot of these guys um, who were minors had come from places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, some of them had already been involved in labor issues um, in those places, and they were already um, thoroughly steeped in uh, unionism. And like I said earlier, this is something that's it's difficult for us to imagine, but th- these were people who didn't have they didn't have retirement. They weren't going to get a pension. They weren't going to get Social Security. They didn't have any disability benefits. If they got killed on the job, there'd be a note in the paper about how sad it was and how many people came to the funeral wishing the widow and children well, and that was kind of it. So, uh, different times. It was a different time. <laughs> and the people who got involved in the union, they were really putting their livelihoods on the line when they went on strike. Right. They were not getting any money, mm-hmm. and they weren't going elsewhere to work. They were striking. Mm-hmm. And so um, this was something that they obviously felt very passionate about. And there are stories from all over the country during this time period about you know the violence that went on between the coal miners and the coal companies. Because, of course, like I said earlier, the coal companies, were not, they were not a progressive social organization they didn't care right um really was there any um instances of um labor violence in Issaquah yes very oh. much so in 1891 um there were strikes really all over the region um uh, they called it a general strike so the miners in Black Diamond and Franklin and uh, I believe Roslyn and a couple other places as well as the miners in Gilman went on strike. So there'd been a few things leading up to this. Of course, um, the there are reasons today why people are legally entitled to unionize, because at that time period, if the company found out you were trying to unionize, you could get fired, you could get blacklisted, which meant that you could never get another job again in the town in that particular mine. Um, And some of this did go on in Issaquah. So before this strike was called in 1891, there had already been incidences of the mine superintendent taking all the troublemakers and moving them to two particular pits in the mine. And then a few weeks later, um, closing those two pits and saying, oh, well, we're done with those. And then all you guys are, are laid off. So they definitely made an attempt to identify the, quote, troublemakers, end quote, and get them out of the way because they didn't particularly want a unionized right. you know, workforce. That was not in their best interests. Mm-hmm. So um, this strike that occurred in 1891, um, there were a lot of people concerned about violence. And uh, there were a lot of kind of mixed stories about what was going on. So I've read different sources. One source, the colonel who ended up um, asking the governor to send militia out to the Gilman mines, um, telegraphed the governor in June of of 1891 and said, look, they're getting ready to riot. They're going to destroy the mine works. Uh, This is really serious. We need to get the militia out here. Other sources say that there had not been any disturbance um, and that this fellow was sort of overreacting and creating a situation where he could paint a picture of imminent violence and riot and then go in and play the hero. This was one of the theories I'd heard. Um, Of course, giving himself a a dangerous conflict to go in and and save the day with his Mm -hmm. militia. So um, 
So there were militia uh, units sent out to a number of the different towns, and Gilman was one of them. So we have this militia coming into town, and uh, the militia colonel reporting um, sort of all kinds of conflicting information. For example, uh, Colonel Haynes said, well, you know, there's all these crazed strikers, and they've got all these guns. So he claimed that there were 30 guns had been sent to Gilman for the use of these strikers in making violence. Well, the station agent at the depot said, no, it was actually more like three guns. Um, Later, Haynes claimed that the strikers had 125 guns, and the strike leader came back and said, we only have about 60 guns, and it's a hunting community, so of course we have the guns. (laughs) So, and, And part of the concern, of course, was that there would be violence, and then the other concern was that the coal company wanted the militia to protect their their infrastructure, their buildings, and particularly their dynamite, mm-hmm. um, because coal mines all have a lot of dynamite, and if you're concerned about the strikers having guns, you're probably doubly concerned about them getting hold of dynamite. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people living here felt very threatened by this. I mean, you've got an armed militia marching into town. Basically, it becomes an occupied city, um, and they pitched their tents roughly where the intersection of Front and Sunset is today. Mm-hmm. And they marched around and did their drills and carried their guns and played cards and drank and had fun. And uh, and there was sort of a, an air of restrained panic among a lot of the townspeople, especially um, some of the striking uh, families. Um, there was also, a, there were a few people who decided that they needed to go back to work um, the the coal company wasn't just sitting here and taking it. They were bringing in strike breakers, right. which are also known as scabs. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this created a lot of um, uh, tension. Uh, the striking workers were not happy about having strike breakers come in and doing their work because this just uh, – they were withholding labor in hopes of getting a decent contract. So if you've got somebody else coming in to do the labor, then the fact that you're withholding labor – doesn't really have meaning anymore. Um, In some of the other communities, in Franklin, for example, it was interesting, um, one of the mine managers went to the Midwest and began recruiting fellows to come in and work in the mines. He didn't tell them they were coming in as strike breakers. Oh, okay. And so, um, and a lot of these guys were African American. And so we suddenly they arrive in town and the strikers discover that there are scabs coming in. The scabs or strike breakers discover that they are scabs and there were actually a few people killed in Franklin. So there were no deaths in Gilman, um, but there were strike breakers being brought in. Um, And two of the guys who'd worked in the mines and decided that they couldn't keep striking. They had to go back to work. They had large families. They couldn't do this anymore. Um, Actually had their homes fired upon in the middle of the night. So this was... This was Old something. Drive-by. Oh yeah, <laughs> seriously. Uh, this was this was something that I've noticed even um, even as late as like the '60s, '70s, '80s. I actually had a conversation with a gentleman whose grandfather worked as a mind physician, and he was talking about playing with other kids in Issaquah when he was a child in the 1920s. And um, there was a lot of awareness if, you know, if you played with a kid whose parents, whose dad was a scab, you oh. know, and then and they would pick on you for being in with a scabber, quote, mm-hmm. end quote. 
Uh, we've also got an oral history that we did with somebody in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And in the course of his conversation, he was identifying people as, well, so-and-so, you know, he was a scabber and so-and-so was a scabber. So this is right. something that really lived on in people's memories. Right. Um, if so Issaquah was such a blue-collar labor town. Mm-hmm. You know, I always, I always perceived it as an agricultural community. And it was yeah. up until uh, before 1888. And after about 19, 1925 is when the Grand Ridge mines mm-hmm. closed down. Mm-hmm. And after that, if you were a coal miner and you wanted to keep mining coal, you pretty much had to go to Centralia because that was the only place left where there was active coal mining mm-hmm. um, on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, or you stayed in Issaquah and you found a different work to do. So mm-hmm. from 1925 until about 1945 or so, when the population started growing, mm-hmm. again, um, it was a really small rural mm-hmm. farming community, very tight, and everybody knew everybody. Right, but the so. majority of those people, if they stuck around, they were – coal miners at one point and yeah you know so people remembered you were a scabber and exactly you were a union guy and, yeah and those tensions kind of went continued on mm-hmm. they that's, they that's stayed they stayed as part of the identity oh, of that okay. particular person interesting. yeah interesting interesting so we're we're um i think we're right around 1904 1907 mm-hmm. so we're, we're continuing so that's so um, we're continuing with coal mining, mm-hmm. and then, like you said, 1925. Um, how did the depression hit this community? Um, well, actually, uh, if we want to back up a little bit, yeah. um, so 1904, there was yet another strike, mm-hmm. and it, and this was the strike from which the mines did not reopen, mm-hmm. um, and they. A lot of people, it went through a couple changes of ownership. So companies would purchase the mines and everyone would get kind of excited and then nothing would happen and everyone mm-hmm. would get depressed. So a company purchased the mines in around 1910. And this, uh, I'm not, there were a lot of name changes too. So sometimes it's hard to keep up. It eventually was named the Issaquan Superior Mine. And the fellow who was in charge of the mine here was Alvo von Albenschlieben. He was That's yeah, a, it's a heck of a name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's fun learning how to spell that one. Um, and so he was an Austrian and he came here and he had really big plans for Issaquah. Um, if you've ever been to Seattle to the gas works there, this is kind of what he pictured for Issaquah. Not only did he picture um, exploiting the coal resources that were still here, but he pictured building a natural gasification plant and all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. So he had big plans. So under um, under his management, the mines started creating a lot of new infrastructure. Uh, they rebuilt the mine bunkers. They built a lot of new homes. Um, and everything was sort of gearing up to um, to become this major industrial center and co- kind of expand Issaquah's coal economy into some other things and sort of diversify mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And at about that time... Around 1914, 1915, of course, Europe is engaged in World War I by this time. And Austria was not on the side that the United States eventually joined. So Austria was with Germany. And so Alvin Schlieben had a couple problems. Uh, One was that his backers back in Germany were saying, well, no, we're not going to send money out to the other end of the world to this little tiny mine out in the middle of 
nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we need it here. We need to support the Kaiser's war effort. Mm-hmm. So he was losing funding from home. The other thing that happened was, and this is not widely known, but during World War I, um, the United States interned German citizens Many of them for long after the war ended. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it mm-hmm. coincided with a time of really strong anti-immigrant sentiment, okay. which sort of uh, kind of overlapped the anti-labor sentiment. Um, it's an interesting side topic, but during that time period, um, the Alien and Sedition Act was put in place. And one of the things that did was it said that if you were a naturalized citizen and you were accused of seditious activity, you could have your citizenship stripped and be deported. Oh my goodness. So that was something that had not mm-hmm. existed before mm-hmm. and did not exist after. And, of course, um, I'm sure there were many people who were interned or sent out of the country for perceived sedition that Mm -hmm. may have served the purposes of the people who were sending them away. Um, So in any case, um, our friend Alva von Albenschleben uh, was one of those people interned. He and his whole family were sent to an internment camp, and he actually was there until 1920. Um, After he was released, he went on to become a citizen and a successful kind of real estate baron in Seattle. So his story did have a happy ending, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, it had a happy ending, but really unfortunate middle, I'm sure, for him. But in hindsight, I think Issaquah benefits from not having a giant gasification plant. It would have been a much different place, (laughs) for sure. So so what happened then, of course, is that the mine, again, closes down. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other interesting thing that came out of this was that in addition to the mine property, uh, the mine company owned a few other chunks of property in Issaquah. And one of those was what is today Veterans Memorial Field. And after uh, the mine kind of shut down, then the German assets were seized, but no one was really sure who own them now. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of questions of who owned the property and what could be done with it. Mm -hmm. So Veterans Memorial Field um, ended up turning into this huge overgrown lot that nobody knew what they could do with it. Could Mm -hmm. they sell it? Could they not sell it? So so when it was seized, the government, now the government seized it, right? The The assets were seized, Uh but then the question on what to do with it next was very unclear. So did the I guess, did the federal government own, the, own it, or was it local government, state government? Technically, I guess it would have been the federal government. Okay. But they didn't really care about it after the not, war. It was just No, not yeah. really. Okay. So during the 19-teens, actually during the period that the war was going on, um, a lot of the guys from the mines, mm-hmm. former miners, came down and cleaned it up. Uh, something interesting I learned while I was prepping for this is that, uh, of course, coal mines have... Uh, are very susceptible to fire. You've got, you know, flammable gases that are escaping from the earth. You've got dynamite, um, that kind of thing. And uh, so one of the one of the jobs you could have as a coal miner was a fireman in the coal mines. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these guys then ended up becoming Issaquah's volunteer fire department because, well, if you know how to put out a fire in the mine, you could probably have figure out how to put out a fire in a house or something else. What? So in 1912, this, this volunteer fire department formed. And so um, these miners who had at that time no mine to work in um, ended up clearing out the field so they would have a place to play baseball. Oh. And it sort of ended up being 
a volunteer fire department project just mm-hmm. because these guys were miners and firemen mm-hmm. and the volunteer fire department was sort of an organization that they could identify with. Mm-hmm. And so this led directly to the fire department having a baseball team um, and later a basketball team and a football team uh, because they had this great field that people right. could get together and, and play on. Um, and so that's something kind of interesting to the history of Memorial Field. It was identified for a long time as being associated with the Issaquah Fire Department okay. because that was the origin of the field being cleared and belonging to the community. And it's and it's been around since the 19-teens. Yeah. That's, that's a really long time. Yeah. It's, it's the, uh, yeah, I mean, now we're, c- we're coming up on probably 100 years. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, of at least, you know, it being an informal public mm-hmm. park. Right. But yeah, that's, that's had a history as being Issaquah's gathering place since the 19-teens with the rodeos and then later with the Labor Day carnivals. And of course, today we celebrate Salmon Days there. Right. So. That's, that's, I, th- that's a whole podcast in itself. I yeah. Think. Yeah. 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 It really yeah. is. Yeah. It's amazing to think of all the the people and events and things that have happened there. Yeah. So uh, we're in the 19-teens, mm-hmm. and fits and starts at the coal mine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Issaquah and Superior Mine, which is the one that was located on Squawk Mountain, um, that continued to sort of open and close and open and close. And as time went by and the coal deposits that were there became um, fewer and fewer, you'd end up they, – they did what was called column mining – so you would mine the area, but you would leave a column of coal to keep the ceiling of the mine from oh, caving okay. in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of fly-by-night operations that would come in and say, oh, we're going to open the mine. And then they'd tear out all the columns, the ceilings would collapse, and they'd leave. Mm-hmm. So there was some of that. Um, the Grand Ridge Mine also opened around 1907. Um, and it began producing some coal. So that was another place that you could go work if you were a coal miner. So there was still sort of this core group of people who could make a living in the mines, but it wasn't like in the 1890s when you had people coming from um, Finland and Austro-Hungary and Pennsylvania and Ohio and all the other mining regions in the world to come work here. Right, it was just utilizing the existing labor force. Yeah, yeah. It really sounds like uh, the coal mining history is what really kind of started Issaquah. Mm-hmm. Really, it, it gave it gave us the population increase, got the train out here. Um, but you know what? So, and Issaquah it, was a. It sounds like Issaquah was kind of a rough town. It was a very rough town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as m- most of the coal mining towns were, mm-hmm. uh, and it's definitely interesting to go to the archives and look through the the um, the marshal's records as to what he was spending his time doing. Poor guy. Um, the I think the biggest legacy of the coal mining era was that it really jump started the town's um, other services because of course you've got all these miners coming in, so you need to have schools for the kids to attend and people want a dry goods store and a meat cutter and a bakery and they want a bank and so all of these things started being constructed and by 1910 um, Front Street was full of all kinds of services Um, and so those things continued to exist after the mines started closing down. Um, In 1925 uh, the Grand Ridge Mine closed down um, and that sort of heralded the end of the coal mining era in Issaquah. There was still a little bit of very small scale coal mining um, but most of the people in town if they wanted to continue working as a coal miner they had to move elsewhere um, probably to Centralia where there was still active mining going on Um, 
or they had to find something else to do to stay there in Issaquah. And it's interesting, there's an editorial a few years after this happened where the editor is talking about all the store windows are getting ready for Christmas and sort of how nice it is that it's sort of just us and it's not this crazy coal mining town anymore. So that was, you can really see the transition from being um, a, a busy town with a big industry and a mobile population and moving into an era where people came and stayed and settled and got to know each other and created this really um, tight-knit small-town community. Well, that's, that sounds like an interesting phase that we can talk about probably in our next podcast. That sounds great. But this has really been interesting, you know, um, just the fact that, uh, you know, I always thought that this was always an agricultural community mm-hmm. that, that – you know, coal mining came through, but it really just sounds like coal mining created Issaquah in a lot of ways. That's one of the really fun mm-hmm. things about the history of Issaquah mm-hmm. is there's so much more to it than meets the eye when you look at the town today. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to our next podcast, and we'll, we're going to talk about um, the next phase when it's a more of a rural, com- I mean, uh, you know, agricultural community mm-hmm. and small town Americana, it sounds like, and we'll get into that in the next time. Well, Erica, thank you so much for taking time out and joining us on Uniquely Issaquah. If citizens of the Issaquah or surrounding community want to know a little bit more about um, Issaquah history, how would they find that out? They can go check out our website at www.issaquahistory.org. Um, you can also check out our events page to see when our next scheduled um, mine hike might be because we do guided hikes of the Issaquah Superior area. Oh, that sounds fun and exciting. If yes. you love history, it sounds like a real way, a, it's great a great way, time. great way to interact with history and to kind of reach out and touch mm-hmm. it. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us on this episode of Uniquely Issaquah. For more information on upcoming episodes of Uniquely Issaquah, you can like us on the City of Issaquah's Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at City of Issaquah. Thanks for listening and stay unique, Issaquah. <laughs>